take your Bibles, put them over your heart, would you? And say this with me. This is my Bible. God's written living word to me. Open my eyes, Lord, that I might behold wonderful things from your law. I was realizing during my study that the first message I taught in this series was almost a month ago on the 2nd of December. I taught on the subject of grace. And then we had the shooting at the school. Then we had our ordination. (laughs) Then we had Christmas. And I'm just getting back to grace. And I want to talk to you this morning about the scandal of grace. If you're turning in your Bibles, I'll be reading from Romans chapter 5, verse 20 and 21. But then the law came in only to expand and increase the trespass, making it more apparent and exciting opposition. But where sin increased and abounded, grace, that's God's unmerited favor, has surpassed it and increased the more and superabounded. So that just as sin has reigned in death, so grace, unearned and undeserved favor, might reign also through righteousness, right standing with God, which issues in eternal life through Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, our Lord. Looking back at verse 20. But where sin increased and abounded, grace has surpassed it and increased the more. And it has super abounded. I have a word for 2013. You ready? Wherever you've experienced failure, Get ready for multiplied grace. That's what the writer's saying. Wherever there's been failure, there's much more grace to take care of those circumstances. But you know, that idea is almost scandalous, even in the church among Christians. How scandalous this new message called grace and it was new when Jesus brought it it was new to the hearers it was new to the religious people of his day and he was roundly soundly criticized for his message of grace Philip Yancey in his book what's so amazing about grace has said, and I quote, from nursery school on, we're taught to succeed in the world of ungrace. Oh yeah, come on, think about it. The early bird gets the worm. (laughs) That's an ungrace. That's not grace. That's an ungrace. How about this? No pain, no gain. I mean, I remind myself of that every morning at five o'clock when I'm getting up to be at the racquetball court at six a.m. that is no pain no gain that really is an ungrace that's not grace there's no such thing as a free lunch 
<laughs> How many times have we said that? It's an ungrace. Bring me down a little bit, Jeff, please. You get what you... Sure, that's an ungrace, isn't it? You get what you deserve, nothing more and nothing less. See, we live in a world of ungrace, and so a message of grace, just unmerited favor, just, just because of love, is really foreign, even though we are Christians. And, you know, one of the people who was worst at this, absolutely the worst at really understanding this, was scrupulous Peter. You know what I mean by scrupulous? I don't either, so I looked it up. It means diligent, thorough, and extremely attentive to details. Have you ever met anybody like that? There's one sitting before you. Yeah, there was this quick undertow there. Nobody wanted to say it. Yeah, our pastor. Yes, I am. Indeed, I can be very scrupulous. And like Peter, in our approach to Jesus, Peter came and he said, Jesus, how many times must I forgive my brother if he sins against me? Now get this. This is scrupulous Peter. High attention to detail. I mean, he wants a mathematical equation here. Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive somebody who offends me or sins against me? Now, Peter, before he even finishes the sentence, offers a suggestion based on old Jewish law. Up to three times? Some translations have up to seven times. Like, wow. In fact, I think what Peter was really saying was the Jewish, the Jewish people thought three times and you're out. Sound familiar in society today? Three strikes and you're out. But Peter thought he'd, he'd go above that and suggest seven times. And what was Jesus's response? Let's look at it. Matthew chapter 18. Verse 21. Matthew chapter 18. Verse 21, then Peter came to him and asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Notice, it's not even how many times, it's how often. Now, that's a little bit different. Because how many times have you forgiven somebody for something that they said or did at 10 o'clock? And by noon, they were, they were on your bad list again. This is what's really being talked about here. So he offers seven times. Jesus replied, not seven times, but 70 times seven. And you know what the point is? Whether it's 70 times or 70 times seven, depending on your translation, who's counting? Jesus was really saying grace grace where there's sin where there's failure there should be even more abundant grace and i know it's undeserved but see in our scrupulous fashion in our judgmental type of way we want a mathematical equation jesus we want you to own up to this i, I want to know where i can stop forgiving and i can start judging 
I want to know where I don't have to extend this favor anymore. And I want to hold this person accountable for the way they've made me feel. Now, come on. Does anybody else live there besides me? Now, Jesus follows this statement with an exaggerated parable about a king who forgave a debt of somebody who owed him millions. And he just wiped it out, just forgave him. And then that servant turned right around and went after somebody who owed him a few dollars and the person couldn't pay it. And that servant had that whole family thrown in jail. The wife, the kids, the whole bunch until they could pay it. Well, that got reported back to the king. And he really came hard on that servant saying, Look, I forgave you millions. Should you not have forgiven this penny amount? What's what's the real story there? It doesn't matter whether it's something small or it's something gigantic. God's grace covers it all. No matter what circumstances you're in today, God's grace is super abundant to meet those circumstances today. And no matter how many times somebody has offended you, there's no limit. There's no limit to the command that we have to forgive. And to love, to show grace. C.S. Lewis said, and I quote, To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. End quote. How many of you have heard the term something old, something new? Or something new, something old? Did you know that grace can even be seen in the Old Testament? Even in the Old Testament, there's evidence of God's grace, God's nature. How about Jacob? Do you remember the story of Jacob? Do you know what his name means? Supplanter. He was a conniver. And yet God used Jacob instead of Esau, who was diligent. He was studious. He had all his... T's crossed and his eyes dotted and he went to worship and he read his Bible and he loved God. And, but God chose Jacob, a conniver. How about David, the king? You remember David's story. Not only an adulterer, but a murderer. King David was somebody who murdered to feed his lust. And yet God called him a man after his own heart. Does that sit well with you? Isn't there just something about that that's not fair? David, you deserve some justice here. And yet God called him a man after his own heart. That was his epitaph. And then we have Solomon. Offspring of an adulterous relationship. Possessor of a thousand wives and concubines. And yet 
called the wisest man on the earth. Now, I want to pause just for a moment and say that any man that would desire to have a thousand wives, they're just, you got to question the wisdom of that. I mean, I'm still, I'm learning to live with the one that I have. No, really, that's my challenge, not hers. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm learning to love. I, I'm learning about this thing, this species called female. Solomon had a thousand of them. And yet he was the wisest man on the earth. How is that? But there were grace. There was grace. <laughs> Turn to Matthew's gospel, chapter 20. And let's look at the parable of the landowner for just a moment. Matthew chapter 20. And we'll start reading in verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay the normal daily wage and he sent them out to work. At nine o'clock in the morning, he was passing through the marketplace and saw some people standing around doing nothing. What do you call those kind of people? Lazy, homeless bums. All right. We see vagrants. We see them down on the street corners, downtown Denver, holding this right. All right. Now get this at this parable. At nine o'clock in the morning, he was passing through the marketplace and he saw some people just standing around doing nothing. So he hired them, telling them he'd pay them whatever was right at the end of the day. And so they went to work in the vineyard and at noon and again at three o'clock, he did the same thing. And then at five o'clock that afternoon, he was in town again and he saw some more people standing around and he asked them, why haven't you been working today? And they replied, because nobody hired us. We weren't really looking. And, uh, you know, we were making busy, making up our signs to hold on the corner and or whatever. We weren't being diligent and, you know, we were just kind of going with the flow and shooting some craps or doing whatever we were doing, you know. But we weren't working. We were standing around. And the landlord owner told them, then go out and join the others in my vineyard. That evening, he told the foreman to call the workers and to pay them, beginning with the last workers first. When those hired at five o'clock were paid, each received a full day's wage. When those hired first came to get their pay, they assumed that they would receive even more. But they, too, were paid a day's wage. When they received their pay, they protested to the owner. Those people worked only one hour. And yet you've paid them just as much as you've paid us who have worked all day in the scorching heat. He answered one of them, friend, I haven't been unfair. Didn't you agree to work all day for the usual wage? Take your money and go. I wanted to pay this last worker the same as you. It is not against the law for me to do what I want with my money. Should you be jealous? Because I am kind to others. They didn't deserve it. 
We were the early birds. We should get the worm. (laughs) We worked hard. They didn't. And yet grace just comes into that situation and says, you know what? I'll give. See, God doesn't handle situations the same way that we do. Philip Yancey says in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace? And I quote, Their discontent arose from the scandalous mathematics of grace. Isn't that true? I mean, factor it in. Is there anything more in your face than this example of grace and ungrace? We live in a society that's built on performance. We live in a society that awards, that rewards hard work, diligence. I'll make a way. I'll own up. And here, this owner, this vineyard master, pays the same wage to the whole bunch, even the person that worked one hour. Isn't there something wrong with that? God, that's not fair. And the answer from the Lord comes, I don't pay wages. I give gifts. I don't pay wages. I give gifts. How many of of you are glad none of us have gotten what we merited? Truth be known, None of us in this room have received what we deserved. And aren't you glad? I wonder if in 2013, God is calling us as a community to be more scandalous. To be full of grace, giving, loving, freely. And not holding people to a mathematical account of how good they've been or what expectations they've met or not met to measure up to our standard before we'll love and accept them. Again, Philip Yancey says, quote, In the bottom line realm of ungrace, some workers do deserve more than others. But in the realm of grace... The word deserve does not even apply. End quote. Do you know that scandalous grace is really the father's heart? Is it possible that Christ's ministry and the stories called parables that he told serve more to correct our notion of God And our notion of God's love. Than they do to teach us. What's expected of our behavior. I have never considered that. I always thought the parables were there. To teach me how I need to own up. How I need to walk tall. How I need to get it straight. I've got sin in my life, dun, 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 I need to, and I should behave like this, and here's how I, that's how I've always looked at the parables. Could it be that the parables are actually there to show us God, 
to show us his grace, to show us how he loves us rather than to correct my behavior. Let's look at another very famous passage. You all know it. You know the story well. Even non-Christians know this story. Luke. Luke's Gospel, chapter 15. Let's go there. Luke, chapter 15. Now, this is the story of the prodigal. And I'm not going to read it from the beginning. But again, you knowing it, you know that this is regarding a man who leaves his father's household. He comes to his father one day, and there's actually two brothers living in this home. And the younger of the two comes to his father and says, You know what? I'm old enough to leave home now. I want my inheritance, all of it. I'm leaving now. And his father gives it to him. He goes out and he squanders the whole thing. In riotous living, the scripture says. Spin it on women and wine and hard living and just having a great time. And found himself feeding slop to pigs. Now, think about this story in terms of the Jewish mind. Keep in mind who Jesus is speaking to. So here you have somebody who presumably is of uh, the Jewish culture, who's received his inheritance, left home, spent all that he had on riotous living, and is doing one of the most disgusting, despicable jobs on earth, feeding slop to swine. And the scripture says that he comes to himself. And he says, I'll go home. And he, and he remembers how that his father had plenty. No one ever went without. Verse 20. So he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him and kissed him. And his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. And I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But his father said to the servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf that we have fattened. We must celebrate with a feast. Now, again, I have always read this parable with certain lenses. Well, this is great. He repented. He owned up. He got right with God. He realized his sin. He said, I need to go home. And then once he got there, he got before his father. He repented. He told his father how bad he was. He listed all the things for his father that he had done wrong and bad. And then he sought his father's forgiveness. And surely the father said, well, I, I forgive you, but you're going to have to make restitution. You're going to have to start now at the bottom rung. You're going to have to. Uh, am I painting a picture of how we have often come to the Lord? <laughs> and then I read 
reread this sentence from the message translation, verse 20. And and when he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And his father, heart pounding, ran out, embraced him, kissed him. Now, the son hadn't repented of anything yet. He had just come home, as far as the father knew, with a hungry belly looking for a meal. He hadn't owned up to anything. He hadn't listed all his sins. He didn't even make it to the house. The father met him out in the field. Hugging him. Loving him. His heart pounding. This is my son. You know, I think sometimes it takes some failures in our life to magnify the grace that is so rich. Do you realize that had this young, younger brother not gone and spent his inheritance and riotous living, that he would never have experienced this kind or level of the father's love quite this way? You have only to look at the older brother who was there in the house, dutiful, mathematical, scrupulous. He dotted all his I's, crossed all his T's. He went to worship service. He read his Bible. Everything was right spiritually. And as you read on in the story, he got mad. He got mad that the father was throwing a feast for this sinner who had wasted all of his inheritance. And now the father's out there falling all over him, slopping on him and loving on him. He hasn't even told you how he's been living yet. And you're making a big deal out of him. And I've been here in this house. I've served you. I've done everything you've asked of me. I've always been on time. And you know what the father said? Son, all that I have has always been yours. But my younger son has come home from a place of ungrace and he's he's given and surrendered himself to grace. Mm. Don't you love that? Don't you love that? In fact, the message translation says this, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, his heart pounding, and he ran out and he braced him and he kissed him. And the son started his speech, Father, I've sinned against you, but the father wasn't listening. And he called his servants, quick, get the robe. Isn't that great? I, I, I don't want to hear your lists. You don't need to detail everything you did wrong. I love you. I accept you. No, it's not fair. Yes, the neighbors are going to talk, but I don't care. Because it's scandalous grace. God, help us at Genesis in 2013 to become more scandalous. What a nice label it would be. The scandal. Genesis church. The scandalous group. The community of the scandalous. 
Now, see, there's always actually been a divine tension between this judgment, this God of judgment that we read about in the Old Testament, but this God of grace. Because, see, God's never changed his nature. We just see him differently depending on what we read and what we've heard preached. But even in the Old Testament, when God would take a nation or take a people group and pronounce judgment, he'd feel bad about it and he'd start rethinking it. And here in Hosea chapter 11, verse 8, he he starts repenting of that. He starts changing his mind of that judgment. And this grace starts flowing out of him. And he he rewords it and he says, but Ephraim, how can I give up on you? Put your name in there. How can you give up on Jeff? How can you send Jeff away? See, that personalizes it. Put your name in there. Hosea eleven eight. That's you. God can't give up on you. God's never going to send you away. And yeah, it's not fair. And it's not what you deserve. It's called grace. <laughs> grace how many of you remember that there was a disciple of the 12 of of jesus's disciples who had a particular label he was known as the one that jesus loved john chapter 21 verse 20 the one that jesus loved wouldn't that be great just to go around like on your business card, maybe, when you hand your business card to somebody. I mean, it, 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 wouldn't it be scandalous? Ooh, so juicy. That on your business card, you hand it to somebody, and it says, the one Jesus loves. See, put your name in there. He loves me. He delights in me. But Pastor Jeff, you don't know what I've done. No, but he does. And you know what? <laughs> He's just really not all that concerned. Because it's his grace that empowers me to live a holy life. It's his grace overflowing in me that actually enables me to be all he wants me to be. And he knows that. And so far more than being a God of paying a wage, he is a God that gives, gives. I want to close with a quick definition of grace. And again, I'll borrow, cannot improve upon this, from Philip Yancey's book. Now, we're not done, so don't start wrapping up mentally and in your attitude just because I use that word, we're going to close. All right? Hang in there with me just a minute because we have something special we want to show you. But Philip Yancey in his book that I've mentioned before says this regarding the definition for grace, and I quote, Grace means there is nothing we can do to make God love us more. No amount of spiritual calisthenics and renunciations. No amount of knowledge gained from seminars and divinity schools. No amount of crusading on behalf of righteous causes. And grace means there is nothing we can do to make God love us less. No amount of racism or pride or pornography or adultery or even murder. Grace means that God already loves us as much as an infinite God can possibly love. End quote. 